Bridget, our first ever interaction was when you retweeted a hate article about me from The Nationalist while I was a Sarasota County school student. You are a reminder that some people view politics as a service to others, while some view it as an opportunity for themselves. Mm-hmm. On this board, you have spent public funds that could have been used to increase teacher pay, to change our district lines for political gain, remove books from schools, target trans and queer children, erase black history, and elevate your political career, all while sending your children to private schools because you do not believe in the public school system that you've been leading. My question is why doesn't an elected official using our money to harm our students and our teachers for her gain seem to matter as much to us as her having a threesome does? (laughs) Bridget Ziegler, you do not deserve to be on the Sarasota County School Board, but you do not deserve to be removed from it for having a threesome. That defeats the lesson we've been trying to teach you, which is that a politician's job is to serve their community, not to police personal lives. So, to be extra clear, Bridget, you deserve to be fired from your job because you are terrible at your job. (laughs) Not because you had sex with a woman. Well done, young man. I approve. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans, on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's. AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. That, by the way, at the top of the show, uh, in case there's anyone still in America not familiar with the story, is there anyone, (laughs) Desi Doyen, who hasn't heard about this somewhat? I'd be surprised if not. Well, you know, our listeners don't get out much. So I will just note uh, that that is that young man uh, was speaking last week at a uh, public comment period at the Sarasota County, Florida School Board. He was calling out Bridget Ziegler, a member of that board and a co-founder of the far-right so-called Moms for Liberty group, which has made, uh, among other things, huge efforts to ban books regarding the LGBTQ community, one of its top priorities. In fact, Ziegler 
supposedly helped draft Florida governor and likely failed 2024 GOP presidential candidate Ron DeSantis's so-called don't say gay law, making it a crime for teachers to discuss, to even bring up issues of homosexuality. Bridget Ziegler, however, was recently outed as being part of a threesome with her husband, Christian Ziegler, who is chair of the Florida State Republican Party, and with another woman who has now filed a lawsuit accusing Christian Ziegler of raping her. Now, he denies it. He is fighting his removal as chair himself of the Florida GOP, of course. And, of course, Bridget, his wife, is, uh, at last I checked, I believe, refusing to resign from the Sarasota County School Board, even as a so-called mom for liberty who had become a nationally recognized advocate for restricting rights for the LGBTQ community. DeSantis, by the way, endorsed her run for the uh, Sarasota School Board. He also uh, named her to be on the board that took over from Disney in in that district. Uh, that All of that, even as she was allegedly secretly having gay sex with another woman along with her husband. Well, I happen to like what the student had to say, which is what matters is that you're bad at your job and that you're in the process of restricting rights for parents and students in public schools when you send your own children to private school. I mean, the hypocrisy, it just gets it's overflowing. Just another day in Ron DeSantis's so-called conservative Florida, I guess, Florida, USA, I guess. Anyway, uh, coming up later, the uh, year 2023 is going out uh, with a bang, not a whimper. And it ain't even over yet. But our final green news report of the year is coming up. Yep. As we wrap up the broadcast for the year today and prepare to hit the road before the holidays, we've, uh, we've got good news and bad, as usual, on the show today as one of the craziest years in American <laughs> history perhaps world history, finally begins to wind down. Uh, though I think that, uh, frankly, I think 2023 may have nothing on what awaits us all in 2024, I hate to say. But we will cross that burning bridge when we are forced to uh, after our return and a much-needed holiday break. For now, let's start with some good news, at least for now, regarding both next year's elections and, by the way, the future viability of the landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965 in these United States. So actually, yeah, this is quite good news, I think. In a decision, actually two decisions, actually coming from, of all places, the very, very right-wing, oh, I'm sorry, conservative <laughs> Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, the Fifth U.S. Circuit which decided last week that it will not rehear a case that could have drastically impacted redistricting, congressional redistricting, and legal precedent under the Voting Rights Act. On Friday last week, the very conservative 5th U.S. Circuit denied Louisiana Republicans' request for the entire 5th Circuit to reconsider the ability of private parties such as nonprofit organizations and voters and legal groups, etc., to bring claims under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. 
to remedy discriminatory maps and voting practices. Now, that is a big deal. You may recall a week or two ago on this show, I don't know, could have been months at this point, time (laughs) means nothing anymore, but I think it was a week or two ago, there was a ruling from a different U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals finding, incredibly enough, that the Voting Rights Act does not allow private parties like aggrieved voters or the NAACP or the ACLU, et cetera, to sue to enforce the Voting Rights Act, that only the United States Attorney General can bring such lawsuits, which came as shocking news, of course, to the hundreds of litigants that have successfully sued to enforce the act over the years. Well, Friday's Fifth Circuit Court ruling is the latest in a lawsuit that was originally filed on behalf of black voters challenging Louisiana's congressional map for diluting the voting strength of black voters under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Earlier this month, Louisiana Republicans had asked the entire Fifth Circuit Court, uh, as opposed to the typical three-judge panel, because I guess they know how... uh, right wing the Fifth Circuit is and didn't want to take a chance on getting, you know, three of the wrong judges or two of the wrong judges on a three judge panel. So they asked the entire court to rehear a lower court decision that affirmed that, in fact, Louisiana must draw a new congressional map for 2024, that their current maps were unlawful racial gerrymanders under the Voting Rights Act. Specifically, Republicans challenged part of a November ruling confirming the ability of private litigants, civil rights groups, individual voters, etc., to bring lawsuits under Section 2 of the Act. In legal terms, this concept is known as a private right of action, notes Democracy Docket today. Louisiana Republicans asked the Fifth Circuit to reconsider its Voting Rights Act precedent itself after that recent catastrophic ruling from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in St. Louis, Missouri, in uh, in November, so last month, which uh, had held that private litigants can no longer bring suits under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Crucially, that ruling for now anyway, only applies to the seven states that are in the Eighth Circuit. That would be Arkansas, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota. But on Friday, as Democracy Docket explains, the Fifth Circuit down in uh, Louisiana denied this radical request, meaning that the decision will not be reheard and Louisiana Republicans' attempt to block private groups and voters from bringing claims under Section 2 is, for now at least, stalled. It's a a victory for voters and private groups in the three, three states that are covered by the Fifth Circuit. That would be Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. Got more on Texas in a moment. But there currently still remains well-established precedent for a private right of action under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in the Fifth Circuit, in the Sixth Circuit, and in the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Not to mention, by the way, the U.S. Supreme Court, which also recently respected that precedent, its own precedent, when it affirmed a lawsuit that was brought by private groups under Section 2 out of Alabama, 
when the uh, high court ordered uh, just this last June that the state redraw its U.S. House maps to add another black majority voting district before the 2024 uh, elections. Uh, further underscoring the just the ridiculous notion that in all of these years of the Voting Rights Act, nobody seemed to notice until the judges on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals bothered to look, I guess, that the uh, VRA somehow only allows a sitting U.S. attorney to sue under it. Who knew? Nobody noticed. The timeline for Louisiana now to adopt a new congressional map therefore remains the same. The legislature now has until January 30 to enact a new map or to inform the court that it will not be enacting a new map. Various things may happen based on that, but for now, that new map uh, is or should be uh, moving forward. There are still obstacles in the uh, in the 2024 road ahead here, of course, depending on what the legislature does. Not to mention the fact that given the conflicting decisions at the various circuit court levels now, the Supreme Court could step in and put a halt to everything as they are wont to do uh, in order to sort of bollocks up the Voting Rights Act in election years. You mean but, like to delay the proceedings so that they can say, oops, too late. Well, now it's yeah, too late before the election. We can't do anything. Correct. We've got three courts who say one thing, one that says another. Well, let's put a stop. Let's put a hold on everything while we figure this out. We'll let you know, you know, in June uh, of this year, once it'll be too late to you gotcha. know, affect the 2024 election. We will see. We'll see if that happens. But let's take the good news where we can find it, Des. <laughs> True. Um, with the Fifth Circuit declining to reconsider its prior decision, Louisiana is, for now at least, one step closer to a fair map, a fair U.S. House map for 2024. And, of course, we are all one step closer to, you know, fair representation of the nation in the House of Representatives. But in another decision on Friday from the same very far-right Fifth Circuit Court, the private right to sue under the Voting Rights Act was confirmed yet again. You know, they're sending a pretty clear message. The ruling itself in a Texas case uh, was actually not as good news. The uh, court ruled that Texas's current law banning online voter registration in, in a state which, by the way, had the lowest voter turnout in 2020. That would be Desi's home state of Texas, so yep. I blame you for everything there. Absolutely. Um, Texas, I, even though I'm not personally responsible, I still feel terrible that Texas is probably the worst in the nation or among the worst when it comes to it voting. impossible for people to vote. Yeah, and of course I'll take credit for the Eighth Circuit's decision in St. <laughs> Louis, go. Missouri, that there's no <laughs> private right of action. Anyway... What the Fifth Circuit did, a panel on the Fifth Circuit, a three-judge panel, uh, confirmed that the state is allowed to require a so-called wet signature for voter registrations, an original signature, uh, you know, signed by pen. But that ruling also, at least, again, affirms the private that private parties can sue under the uh, Voting Rights Act. In particular, the opinion cited decisions from the 3rd and 11th U.S. circuits addressing the private right of action issue. However, despite rejecting many of the appellant's arguments, the 2-to-1 majority 
of the uh, three-judge circuit court panel. It had two Republican-appointed judges in the majority. They ultimately held that a wet ink signature is material to determining whether one is qualified to vote in Texas, finding, quote, Texas's justification that an original signature advances voter integrity is legitimate, the two judges in the majority found. Now, the Voting Rights Act requires that restrictions on voting, any restrictions, must be for so-called material reasons. And that prevents, you know, non-material reasons like, oh, they forgot to fill in their birth date on the registration form or something. It keeps things like that from being used to suppress the vote under the Voting Rights Act. The majority ruled, however, that having an original signature, that that is a material requirement. But in the dissenting opinion, the Obama-appointed Fifth Circuit Court judge, Stephen Higginson, wrote that the, quote, crux of the majority's materiality analysis reduces to one sentence. Texas says it is. That's it. Higginson pointed to the, quote, undisputed fact that Texas county registrars outwardly admitted that they do not use the original wet ink signature in order to determine a voter's qualifications to vote. The dissent added that, quote, Texas has no problem accepting registration applicants' signatures in electronic form when they are completed at the Texas Department of Public Safety offices or in other areas outside of voter registrations like contracts, divorce decrees, property closings. That's fine. You could just send in your electronic signature. Yeah, I mean, it's no only problem. when you don't want people to vote that you have to have that. So, yeah. There you go. It's only when voting that uh, these things suddenly become critical, isn't it? At least in Texas. With Friday's opinion, Texas now remains as one of just eight states in the union that does not offer online voter registration. Uh, another one of those states, Florida. And a similar lawsuit brought by Vote.org, yes, a private organization um, that challenges Florida's wet ink signature rule. That is ongoing in the conservative 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And more on the 11th Circuit in a moment as well. But as long as we're in authoritarian Texas here, uh, on Monday, Republican Governor Greg Abbott signed Another new, almost certainly unconstitutional anti-immigrant law in the Lone Star State. That was on Monday. And on Tuesday, civil rights organizations filed a lawsuit challenging it. The new Texas law would allow state and local police to arrest migrants who they believe had crossed the border illegally and permit local judges to order them to leave the country. Mind you, they don't even necessarily have to be migrants to be uh, arrested. They can just kind of look like migrants, if you know what I'm saying. The lawsuit filed in federal court in Austin, Texas, argues that the measure is set to take effect in March um, and that it is unconstitutional because the federal government has sole authority over immigration, not state governments, not... Uh, the local police guy. Not to mention, by the way, that crossing the border without 
permission and then turning oneself in to authorities and, and seeking asylum is not an illegal border crossing. That's according to both federal and international law. The uh, ACLU, its Texas branch, and the Texas Civil Rights Project sued less than 24 hours after Abbott signed the measure. All of this as Republicans now fall over themselves to join Donald Trump's efforts to be as fascist and, yes, even Nazi-like as possible regarding the border and immigration. And I don't use that phrase lightly, but given Donald Trump's rhetoric of late, yes, I can say Nazi-like. The suit... Challenging the new law was filed on behalf of El Paso County and two immigrant aid groups seeking to block enforcement of the measure and to declare it unlawful. The suit argues, quote, SB4 creates a new state system to regulate immigration that completely bypasses and conflicts with the federal system. Which, by the way, when there are two conflicting laws, the supremacy uh, clause of the Constitution means that federal law takes uh, takes precedent over state laws. The lawsuit was filed against the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety, whose troopers could now, uh, uh, well, beginning in March, arrest migrants, and the El Paso County District Attorney, uh, whose uh, office would potentially prosecute any cases in that border community. According to the lawsuit, the uh, Department of Public Safety director told lawmakers that his agency estimates approximately 72,000 arrests will be made each year under the measure in the new Republican-run police state of Texas. Well, I'm sure the private prison lobby is going to be happy about that. Oh, yeah, good point. The new law allows any Texas law enforcement, any Texas law enforcement officer, to arrest people who are suspected of entering the country illegally once in custody, they could either argue, uh, agree to a Texas's judge, uh, Texas judge's order to leave the U.S. or be prosecuted on charges of illegal entry. Opponents have called the measure the most dramatic attempt by a state to police immigration since a 2010 Arizona law. Remember that one? The show me your papers law, which was eventually struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. The lawsuit cites the uh, 2012 Supreme Court decision on the Arizona law, which stated that the federal government has exclusive powers over immigration. But, of course, Republicans uh, in 2012 did not have a packed, stolen and corrupted six to three high court to rely on. We will see how it goes now. Uh, Quote, the bill according to the uh, opponents here, overrides bedrock constitutional principles and flouts federal immigration law while harming Texans, in particular brown and black communities. That, according to Adriana Pinon, the legal director of the ACLU of Texas. Yo, Adriana, you're uh, you're only helping to sell the bill to state Republicans with comments (laughs) like that. Oh, it targets brown and black communities? We'll take it. Earlier, uh, earlier on Tuesday, ACLU affiliates in Oklahoma, New Mexico, Arkansas, Louisiana, Arizona, Texas, and San Diego and Imperial counties out here in California issued a travel advisory warning of a possible threat to travelers' civil and constitutional rights 
when passing through Texas. Other steps Texas has taken as part of Abbott's border security, of course, have included busing more than 65,000 migrants to cities across America since August of 22 and installing razor wire along the banks of the Rio Grande. Must be nice. That, of course, is the party of freedom. Okay, and now back to, yes, as promised, the conservative 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and some better news regarding actual law and order and our U.S. court system and, yes, our democracy. A federal appeals court on Monday rejected former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' attempt to move his Georgia election interference uh, criminal case to federal court where he thought he might somehow be able to gain an advantage, uh, if only by having Donald Trump perhaps pardon him for the alleged crime of trying to help him steal the 2020 election if Trump somehow becomes president next year again, or to have the U.S. government take over in his place as a defendant since he's arguing his efforts to help Donald Trump steal the 2020 election in Georgia were just a part of his official duties as the then president's chief of staff. Uh, but in a 47-page opinion issued on Monday, a three-judge panel of the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is not a liberal court at all. In fact, the opinion was written by its very conservative chief judge. The uh, three-judge panel agreed with a lower court ruling that Meadows could not use a federal statute to move his prosecution from state to a federal court in Georgia. Neither the lower court nor the appeals court uh, bought the claim that Meadows, you know, in, in trying to pressure Georgia to flip the results from Biden to Trump were actually some part of his official duties. What he did was not, quote, under the color of his official duties. Also of note here, at least as I see it, the 11th Circuit Court, they heard oral arguments in this matter on Friday. And they issued their opinion just one working day later on Monday. Wow. Their 47-page opinion. Uh, the federal courts, uh, anyway, do seem to understand, at least some of them, the urgency of these matters right now moving forward as quickly as possible before next year's presidential election, even the conservative 11th Circuit Court. So that's a good sign, I see, for voters uh, and for justice and for, hopefully for democracy or our imperfect American version of it in any case. But some legal experts are noting how the ruling is even better than us non-legal experts may really understand. Lee Kowarski, a professor of law at the University of Texas, he tweeted out a thread last night saying, this is an astonishing defeat for Meadows on every front. He's not protected because he's uh, a former officer, and he's not protected even if the 11th Circuit turns out to be wrong on that question. This is particularly devastating, writes Kowarski, because the ruling against him on whether his activity was under color of law for the purposes of removing the case from state to federal court will do double duty as an opinion on whether he was engaged in official conduct for the purposes of his immunity defenses. 
Yes, he's also claiming, like Trump, that since he was uh, doing his official duty as an officer, that he is immune from criminal charges for any laws that he might have broken in the course of his job as, uh, in Trump's case, as president, or in this case, chief of staff to the president. And I know it's a ridiculous claim, but that is what Trump is currently using to hold off his federal trial that is scheduled for March 4th related to as many attempts to steal the 2020 election. Back to Kavarsky here. He says this means that state courts have all the cover in the world now to refuse to recognize an officer immunity argument that they were unlikely to recognize anyway. The only entity that can now save Meadows on officer immunity is the Supreme Court, And Kowarski says that seems exceedingly unlikely. In every way, this is bad for Meadows, but it is bad for Trump's defense in Georgia as well. Trump was going to claim uh, uh, immunity, but the 11th Circuit's opinion on the scope of official duty means that it's going to be impossible for Trump to prevail on that defense, at least in the Georgia proceeding. He's going to be saved there by the jury or by winning the national election. But that is it, writes Kowarski. This is also devastating to Trump et al. in the other prosecutions, especially in D.C. In all of these cases, he's claiming various forms of immunity that turn on the basic idea that he was somehow engaged in good governance as opposed to unlawful electioneering. But here's the real key, according to Kowarski. It's impossible to overstate, he writes, the significance of this opinion being written in the 11th Circuit by Chief Judge William Pryor, a conservative stalwart and probably the single biggest circuit court ally to Justice Clarence Thomas in the Supreme Court. He says it's an unmistakable signal to Republican appointed justices that the immunity defenses are totally frivolous. It's really just a worst-case scenario for Trump, not to mention Meadows. Sad. And with that... (laughs) I hope he's right about that. I hope he's right about that, too. Sounds promising. With that good news, let's take a quick break here. We'll come back with some thoughts on both yesterday's show and how to make sense of so much of the hand-wringing and bedwetting by Democrats uh, about next year's election before we even get to the end of this year. That and our last Green News Report of the year are all ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, it's Brad. It's the end of another year and crucially, perhaps terrifyingly, the beginning of yet another critical presidential election year. Longtime listeners of the Bradcast and readers of Bradblog.com know we cover elections like no other outlet in the nation and have now for 20 years with a specific focus on the track conditions as opposed to only the horse race, though we cover that too. This election year will be a big one. Like none other, it could even be the last one, depending on how it goes. If you've come to rely on the broadcast for your critical election coverage in election years, please consider supporting our work right now with a generous end-of-year donation via bradblog.com slash donate. 
help keep the Bradcast and bradblog.com free for all. A one-time donation, or better yet, a simple automated subscription for any amount you can afford is greatly appreciated and much needed. We couldn't do any of this without you. Please stop by bradblog.com donate right now. And from both Desi and me, please have a safe, happy, and healthy new year. Yes, well, the world ain't going to tell us. Uh, We're going to tell each other, I think. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. And boy, did I get a lot of mail, Desi Doyen, overnight uh, and into today following yesterday's call-in show. Uh, Yeah, I I figured you would. You figured I would? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Not complaints, mind you. but but, uh, uh, interested uh, and thoughtful, I hope, uh, emails. (laughs) They were, and and funny. Uh, I had asked uh, callers who had uh, voted on yesterday's show, uh, callers who had, uh, listeners who had voted for Joe Biden in 2020 but were planning to vote for someone else or uh, simply stay home in 2024 to call in and explain why, what they were thinking. And we may do that periodically over the next election year to uh, take the temperature of our, uh, our uh, some of our listeners. Uh, almost all of the emailers to bradcast at bradblog.com and commenters on social media and such were actually infuriated by some of those callers uh, and or uh, amazed at my patience, I guess, in having conversations with them. Uh, quote, how how you dealt with some of those callers, I have no idea. I would have screamed, wrote our friend DR over on Mastodon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, th- that's what we're going to have to try and do. You know, talk to people if we're ever going to save this country, frankly. Uh, from uh, longtime listener Steve, quote, I listened to your podcast while riding my road bike, usually relaxing. Today's uh, last call-in show was a, uh, a phrase that I can't use on air. Uh, how can these people listen to your show and not learn or realize their beliefs are wrong? It's understandable how the MAGA clan can't comprehend how voting third party or not voting is actually casting an anti-democratic vote, right, Steve? Jess wrote in, actually wrote in during the show, but I didn't notice it until after, in uh, in response to one of the callers who said, I think it was, I think it was a she, who said she would be voting third party or not voting at all this, G- this year. She didn't like Trump, but, you know, she just couldn't bring herself to vote for Joe Biden. So Jess wrote in to say, uh, quote, Hi, Brad, if you don't vote, you just voted for whoever won. Mm, good point. I think it is a good point. And uh, hi, Brad, writes Cynthia. I am so frustrated listening to your callers today that I found myself screaming. <laughs> I think I'm starting to notice a theme here. <laughs> yes. uh, my God, uh, she writes, Biden isn't perfect, and I'm not happy with some of the things he has done either. But who the hell is perfect? No one. Nothing good will come out of another Trump presidency, and it will. She says, mean the end of democracy in this country. And to that point, um, I referenced this uh, piece uh, briefly yesterday, but I think it offers some food for thought for all of us over the holidays. And as the 
New election year finally and frightfully begins. Over the weekend, Nicholas Grossman, a political science professor from the University of Illinois, I think he's been a guest on this program. Yes, he has. Uh, he made some uh, important points in a column over at the Bulwark, uh, some of which I have sort of similarly been making, but I think he brings together a whole bunch of threads and, and, and stories that we've been covering into sort of one convenient column. As I noted yesterday, it begins this way, quote, the 2024 election will effectively be an up or down vote on American democracy. And yes, I do agree that is it's pretty much that simple. And for all of the agreements that uh, you uh, I should say arguments that uh, you and I may have with the Democratic Party or with the Republican Party, for that matter, the election next year will not be about any of those things. It will not be uh, about any of those arguments. It uh, ultimately will be about democracy, period. An up or down vote on whether we will get to keep it in the United States beyond next year. As Grossman continues, Donald Trump tried to overthrow the Constitution in 2020, failed and spent the next three years lying about elections, getting indicted for his coup attempt, among other things, plotting to remove the barriers that stopped him, and vowing to turn the federal government into a tool of personal revenge. A majority of Republicans, and as we were reminded again yesterday, even some non-Republicans, are apparently into it. And a plurality of Americans are not opposed. Unless Trump unexpectedly dies, he will be the Republican nominee, writes Grossman. Now, I'm not entirely sure that that will be the case, but I do agree it's most likely. And he will either be defeated next election day or reelected to the White House to break the system. The stakes could not be higher, writes Grossman, and major media outlets have finally started acting that way, dropping the usual sanitizing euphemisms and forced both sides framing. The New York Times and Axios, for example, straightforwardly reported the likelihood that Trump, that returning Trump to the White House would end American democracy. The Atlantic devoted an entire issue to that risk, including Team Trump's plans to corrupt the federal bureaucracy. The biggest splashy notes came from the Washington Post, an essay under the headline, quote, A Trump dictatorship is increasingly inevitable. That was in the Washington Post. Think we should pay attention to that? As A.B. Stoddard noted, this surge of candid coverage is a positive development, providing voters with valuable information about the choice they face. And for the media, it's good preparation for how they ought to cover Trump in the challenging year ahead, emphasizing, as NYU's great journalism professor Jay Rosen puts it, emphasizing not the odds, but the stakes. In other words, never mind all of those polls. Report on what they actually mean, what the stakes are in the 2024 elections. Focus more on what voters will be deciding, not on who is up or down at the moment. It's an election, not a sports event. Yes, thank you, Professor Rosen. 
Grossman uh, continues, yet emphasizing the stakes means more than just acknowledging the dangers of Trump's potential re-election. Yes, Trump will get the Republican nomination and the party will line up behind him, giving him a live chance at the presidency. And yes, it's reasonable to worry that if he becomes president again, he'll take the U.S. from democracy to dictatorship. But we've already seen him try... And unlike the last-minute personnel shuffles and frenetic coup plotting in the last months of Trump's term, his team and right-wing think tanks have planned how to get enough of their people into key positions to make it work this time. Yes, he's leading in some polls, but that means he's competitive, not that he's destined to win. At this stage, polls have little predictive value, notes Grossman, a political scientist. He says they're not worthless because they can help answer questions like, could Trump win? And which voters should anti-Trump campaigns prioritize? But he says there's no use in trying to unskew them, assuming that they're somehow systematically biased in Trump's favor somehow. But hypothetical matchup polls this far out do a bad job of predicting general election results because many respondents are not in the mindset that they will be in when it becomes time to vote. And I would add, by the way, at this point in the 2016 election, it was unthinkable for most that Donald Trump would even be nominated, much less end up defeating the uh, then-presumed Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. Uh, At this point, back in, what was it, 1992, everyone thought George Bush Sr. was going to win. None of the the Democrats, the big uh, big name Democrats decided to run. So some guy named Bill Clinton from Arkansas decided to run. And how'd that turn out? Yeah, he won because they all thought George Bush Sr. was unbeatable. Turned out, beatable. Anyway, Grossman goes on. A lot will happen between now and November 24. For example, Israel-Palestine was not in the news before October 7, an event no one now anticipates could profoundly reshape the race. No one knows for sure what it will look like next March, let alone next November. The millions of Americans who pay little attention to political news until shortly before the election are often those who make the difference, swinging between parties or between voting and staying at home. Of the millions paying attention now, some answer polls strategically, trying to make a politician that they dislike look bad or to pressure current leaders. Others answer to express their opinion on policies or anything really, knowing that the poll, unlike an election, has no real stakes. This far from the general election, many voters are in a primary election mindset, dreaming of alternatives to the two old men heading for a rematch. But when the nominees are actually set and the campaigns ramp up, binary choice logic kicks in. The respondents who answer polls with don't know right now will make a choice. Some who say they'd never vote for a particular candidate will end up voting for that candidate reluctantly or otherwise. Negative partisanship will motivate millions to stop the candidate that they dislike rather than support the one they do like. And while there might not be a pro-Biden majority in America, there is an anti-MAGA majority. 
Since Trump and the Republicans squeaked out a win in 2016, Democrats have done well in every national election, most recently the 22 midterms. And various state-level votes show an abortion rights majority energized by the Supreme Court Dobbs decision. Biden is the nominee who beat Trump once, largely because he won among voters who said they disliked both candidates, whereas Hillary Clinton lost that group back in 2016. All today's polls can really tell us is that the presidential election will be close, just like the last five of the last six. Trump could win, so no one should be complacent, writes Grossman, but he could also lose, as the Washington Post Greg Sargent argues, fatalism about another Trump presidency isn't just excessive worry. It can be counterproductive by playing into a would-be strongman's desired image of inevitability. And, of course, our friend Greg Sargent is correct there. I, I remember observing on this program during Trump's first election bid in 2016, even during the primaries, he had sort of cracked the code to winning a presidential election, uh, I noted at the time, when he started acting like a president. Remember his motorcade, his, his great big uh, airplane, his security detail, even during the primaries. He was acting like an incumbent to give the image of inevitability, and it worked. At least it did in 2016. Playing into that idea right now, of course, is playing into the hands of the would-be strongman. As Grossman and Sargent argue, not a single vote has been cast in the 2024 primary election at this point, much less next year's general election. Which brings us, notes Grossman, to the other side of the stakes in the 24 in 2024 that should be emphasized. He writes, while the election and its aftermath will be a major challenge for American democracy, they also present us with an opportunity for renewal, a chance to demonstrate the success of U.S. institutions, to show that, American, that America's political system has a capacity for self-correction, which non-democracies lack. He goes into some of the upcoming court challenges that Trump will be facing throughout pretty much the entire next year and how... Those uh, those cases may help demonstrate such an ability for self-correction in our system. He notes that in 2024, we're going to have the surreal experience of a presidential election in which one nominee is spending more time on trial than on the trail. He concludes this way. Cynics say that elections don't matter and that voting can't stop authoritarianism but recent history demonstrates quite the opposite. Trump didn't want to leave office and he broke laws and norms to stay, but he lost re-election and on the legally required day he left. Of course, voting can beat authoritarianism, at least at this stage, before an aspiring authoritarian gets enough power. In Democratic backsliding, the aspiring autocrat's first re-election is key. That's when he gains a mandate, even after subtly planning to abuse power and erode rule of law from within. And I would add, especially when he doesn't have a fear that he might, you know, be thrown out in the next election. All bets are off. It won't be easy 
to rally the diverse, contentious majority of pro-democracy Americans enough to overcome Republicans' advantages in the Electoral College. But it is doable, writes Grossman, and if we pull it off, it'll contain the seeds of small-D Democratic renewal. After another Trump loss, there will still be major challenges at home and abroad and consequential fights over policy, but within more normal parameters. That's Grossman's theory, anyway. That opportunity, he writes, is reason enough for pro-democracy Americans to approach the 2024 election with enthusiasm, not only dread. Well, I don't know about you, but I know uh, many people, and I would add myself to the list, uh, who are feeling no small amount of dread these days as we head into another election year, given the likely choices that we face. But I think Grossman is absolutely right. This is uh, nothing to dread. It is an opportunity. We should try to find enthusiasm for what we are about to embark on. A lot of folks that I, I speak to, uh, too many, in fact, seem to think, oh, it's all over. Biden is through. He can't possibly win. But I think it is nowhere near over, at least until the fat man screams fraud, which, of course, you know he will. He has done that in every election he's ever been in, going all the way back to 2016, losing the Iowa caucuses to Rick Santorum and claiming that Santorum's campaign had committed election fraud to beat him. Remember that? to the general election that he actually won in 2016 when he won the presidency, but he lost the popular vote by about 3 million uh, votes. And he claimed that he actually won it by 5 million votes, but for fraud by Democrats out here in California. Remember that? And of course, we all remember what he did in 2020 and has falsely been claiming ever since. Of course, he's going to yell fraud no matter what happens. And yes, Joe Biden may be up against it right now, if you are freaked out by some of the polling reports of late. But anyone who thinks it is over, frankly, is just falling for Trump's gaslighting. Don't fall for it. This is up to us. We can do this. We can save our democracy. We must. Green News Report is next on the final broadcast of the year. I'm Brad Friedman. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Well, it wouldn't be a broadcast if I wasn't A, running late, and B, if there wasn't huge breaking news coming in as we're True. finishing the show. Let me check out this huge uh, breaking news. We'll uh, share it with you after our latest Green News Report. So we're talking about the kind of rain you only see perhaps once every couple of generations. Record rain and floods inundate eastern Australia and batter the U.S. East Coast. 2023 unleashed a record number of billion-dollar weather disasters in the U.S., 
Plus, new polls show bipartisan majorities of Americans increasingly want climate action. All of those bipartisan majorities and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Gasoline prices are now five, six, seven dollars and even eight dollars a gallon. By contrast, under the Trump leadership, my leadership, we had gasoline down to a dollar eighty-seven a gallon. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Beautiful. Yeah, it does sound beautiful, as long as you don't mind the million dead people killed by a pandemic to get that price. By the way, according to AAA, when Donald Trump made that statement a few days ago, gas was averaging about $3 a gallon. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I don't know if facts still matter, but... Uh, as we end the year here on the Green News Report, I'm hoping you've got some for us. Yes, facts coming up right now. Good. More record-shattering rainfall on the northeast coast of Australia. Remnants of slow-moving tropical cyclone Jasper dumped nearly three feet of rain, triggering extreme flooding that cut off the city of Cairns, knocking out power, closing highways and the airport, and threatening the region's drinking water. I'm sorry, you said three feet of rain? Yes. Oh, boy. Here in the U.S., a powerful winter storm dumped intense rain from Florida to Maine over the weekend, killing at least three people. In parts of South Carolina, the storm dumped a record 16 inches of rain in just six hours, causing extreme floods and underscoring how our built environment was not designed for weather disasters intensified by man-made climate change. Just wait till we get three feet of rain. 2023 hit a new record for billion-dollar weather and climate disasters. Those are disasters that cause more than a billion dollars each in loss and damage. The U.S. saw a record 25 separate billion-dollar weather disasters this year, including the Maui fires, Hurricane Idalia in the east, and Hurricane Hillary in the west, plus extreme storms, floods, and droughts across the nation, costing more than $81 billion so far. Is 2023 over yet? Not yet. NOAA says the frequency of billion-dollar disasters has increased dramatically since they began tracking it in 1980. The average time between billion-dollar disasters used to be about three months. Recently, that ticked up to every three weeks. But in 2023, the U.S. saw a billion-dollar disaster on average every 10 days. Man. Global consumption of polluting coal hit an all-time high in 2023. That's according to the International Energy Agency. However, the IEA projects that in 2024, coal consumption will begin permanent decline due to the expansion of cheaper renewable energy capacity globally. More than half of that in China. In China. In China. Oh. New polls show that majorities of Americans are increasingly alarmed about climate impacts and want federal climate action. A CNN poll found nearly two-thirds of U.S. adults say they are worried about the threat of climate change in their communities. Communities, and a broad majority, 73 percent, say they want the federal government to act with climate policies to cut the country's planet warming pollution by half by 2030, which is in line with President Biden's goals. 
A new report finds California's Salton Sea contains even more lithium than thought, which can be extracted without the environmental destruction associated with lithium mining. The deposit contains more than enough lithium to replace all cars and trucks currently registered in the United States. The Saudi Arabia of lithium. Yep. An offshore wind milestone. For the first time, a commercial utility-scale offshore wind farm off the coast of New York just began delivering clean electricity to the U.S. grid. Finally, 2023 will be the hottest year in recorded history, and forecasters warn 2024 is likely to be even hotter. Well, so much for that good news. But Manish Bapna, head of Natural Resources Defense Council, in an interview with PBS, found optimism in the surge of climate action in the U.S. over the last two years. Look at just what's happened in the United States in the last 18 months after the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. We've seen over $100 billion of announcements of investments in solar, in wind, in electric vehicles. We've seen over 100,000 new jobs created. We're starting to see the proof points of real things being built, a better future. Boy, howdy, do I hope you are right. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Icicles on eavesdrops and tinsel on the tree, but it's a green Christmas for me. Yes, it is. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, for a great year of Green News Report. (laughs) And boy, this just in. Uh, The Colorado Supreme Court has declared former President Donald Trump ineligible for the presidency under the U.S. Constitution's Insurrection Disqualification Clause. Yes, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. As we've been talking about all year, uh, he won't get to be on the Colorado ballot. And, of course, as you might suspect, he will be challenging that decision. Anyway, more on that, I suspect, after the start of the new year. We've got to get out. My thanks to all of you for all of your support all year long. It is greatly appreciated. It is not too late for your end of year giving at bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves for another brutal election year, which we approach with enthusiasm. (laughs) That's bradblog.com slash donate. Write me, drop me email while I am gone. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Maybe I'll check my email and social media where you'll find me on Facebook's Mastodons and sites still known as Twitter at the Brad blog. We will see you there at all of the above until we see you here next year. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck world. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1945. That was the day that workers ended their 99-day strike against the Ford Motor Company in Windsor, Ontario. Just across the river from Detroit, workers from the UAW Local 200 fought and won a union shop and dues checkoff. 
they had to fight hard to get it. The plant was organized during World War II. Workers put off many demands to help with the war effort. After the war, Ford refused to agree to a new contract and laid off 1,500 workers. The workers voiced their rage and issued new demands. They wanted vacation and layoff pay, better grievance procedures and medical benefits. They also wanted compensation for work on Sundays and holidays. When Ford refused to budge, 14,000 workers took to the picket line and went on strike. By October, they also shut down the powerhouse that brought light, heat, and power to the plant. Management complained machinery would be damaged if the power remained off. The Ontario Provincial Police and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were called in to reopen the plant. When they arrived, they found a barricade of some 2,000 cars and trucks reinforcing the picket lines. Then, 8,000 workers from Amalgamated Local 195, which included Chrysler workers, walked out in sympathy. They joined the picket lines and stayed out for a month. The Women's Auxiliary organized to feed the strikers. They had financial support from unions, churches, and small businesses from a across the country. Returning soldiers marched in solidarity rallies along with much of the community. Because of this strong showing of support, negotiations were jump-started and soon workers were ratifying a new contract. This victory allowed what is now Unifor 584 to win unprecedented gains for its members for more than three decades.